Uh, this morning, we are digging into the scriptures, uh, which is always one of the highlights of my week, um, and uh, I hope it is for you too, especially this Sunday because we're starting a new sermon series. And so for us as a community, just to give you a little um, background as to what that means, um, when we gather together on Sunday mornings, we take some significant time to open the scriptures and to think about our God and who he is and what he's done and why all of that matters. And so we typically do this by taking a theme or a topic or one of the books of the Bible and looking at it for several weeks in a row. And so... Um, for the first six months of this year, we were unpacking this particular section of scripture found in the gospel according to John. Uh, John was one of Jesus's earliest followers and friends, and um, he wrote down a bunch of things that Jesus said and did. And in one particular section, chapters 13 through 17, he narrows his focus into this uh, particular scene where Jesus has his disciples in this upper room, and he's teaching them about his identity and about what it is that he's going to do, and also about what it means and looks like for them to follow after him um, after he leaves. And in chapter 17, uh, he shifts his focus from the disciples right in front of him to the Father, and he begins to pray. And it's uh, this really just beautiful um, prayer that Jesus prays and, and beautiful opportunity for us to step into the relationship between the Son and the Father. And so we spent a month just in that, in that chapter looking at what Jesus was praying and uh, in thinking about where it is that we wanted to go after spending six months in those, those several chapters, um, I was praying through this and thinking about it, and uh, I was thinking to myself, like, what would it look like for us to answer the prayer of Jesus? Like, he prayed this. He prayed that things would happen in this world, namely that people would come to know him and experience him, and he prayed for his disciples to be able to be a part of that. He prayed for those right there in front of him that they might actually be a revelation of God to the world. In the second half of the prayer, he shifts to those who would hear beyond, that through their words, namely like you and us, those people who will become followers of Jesus in the future, he prays that they also would be this kind of revelation of God to the world. In fact, I wanna read you this piece of, of his prayer. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. And check this out. So that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. So Jesus utters this prayer that something would happen through his people that the world would know that he actually is the incarnate deity. And with, with that, with Jesus praying that for his people, we should be asking, how do we actually answer that prayer? Like he wants us to be a part of answering that prayer. So what does that look like? And so you look at what Jesus did, right? And maybe you go, oh, well, it looks like maybe the miracles. Because when Jesus does all these miracles, he's bringing the kingdom of God into the world. He's showing people who God is and what he's like. And so Jesus goes around and when he sees blind people, he spits in the mud and puts it in their eyes and they, they see. When he sees a leper, he touches them and he heals them. When, when he has a friend who's dead, he raises them from the dead. And all of these are certainly glimpses of who God is and what God is like, that whenever there's brokenness or death or decay, he enters in and he does something good with it. Like that's who God is and what God is like. But there's also a whole bunch of times that Jesus interacts with people 
that I find to be very special and extraordinary. So when you read through the gospel narratives and you start to just look at how Jesus interacts with people, you're gonna notice first, you're gonna notice the extreme diversity of it. Right? There's people from all walks of life. He, he deals with rich people and poor people. He deals with educated people and uneducated people. He deals with the religious elites and the completely irreligious or pagan. Like He deals with a plethora of different kinds of people, just crazy diversity. And as you read through and you notice not just the diversity, you notice the words that he uses. Like When he talks to these people, he uses almost a, com- a completely different approach every single time. Right? He talks to the rich person this way and the poor person this way or the educated person this way or this person that maybe is a friend of a friend in this particular, but he's always, he's so unique in, in his approach with every single interaction. And I began thinking like the wisdom of Jesus to, to do this is just so beautiful and captivating that he has this ability to enter into a moment with whoever it is and be present right there to be present right with them, and to speak words or to ask questions, to engage in conversation that does always bring the presence and beauty of God into the world. Like he, He's just so wise and sympathetic and loving and kind. And to me, it's just absolutely compelling. Like There's something about this Jesus when he interacts with people that just makes me go, I want to follow that guy. And so what I wanted to do was was for the next couple months or so, just walk through all of these different interactions that Jesus has with people in the Gospel of John, um, chapters one all the way up through 12, and just pick some of these different stories where Jesus is having conversation with people, again, from all different walks of life, and just see like what is so compelling about Jesus. And so I wanna take you to uh, this place in the beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus' first interaction with, uh, with some people, and it's actually with uh, these disciples that he's gonna call to follow him. And so I'm gonna read um, verses 35 through uh, 51. And then I'll pray and uh, have a little bit of a, of a disclaimer as to the style of this sermon series um, as opposed to previous ones. But let me read this for you. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. He was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and he saw them following and he said to them, what are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we've found the Messiah which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and he said, you're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and he said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and he said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, 
You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Let's pray. Father, we're, uh, we're grateful for this moment in time, grateful to be able to sing, have something to sing about, reason to sing, and the opportunity to uh, sing with these brothers and sisters and, and know that as we do, your, your truth uh, molds and shapes our hearts and minds, and grateful that, uh, that we have these scriptures these stories of how it is that your son interacted with, uh, with people. And Father, we ask that uh, by your spirit, you would give to us the ability to uh, take from this story what it is that you would have for us to take. That you, by your spirit, would lead us into all truth, that you would mold and shape us more into the image and likeness of your son. For we ask in the most matchless and the most precious name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen and amen. So um, a story like this, like you read through it and there's just a ton of stuff in there, right? There's so many cool things that we could dive deeply into and probably spend days, weeks, really just unpacking the real cool intricacies and like little nuggets of these stories. But given that we're going to be looking at so many interactions with Jesus. Instead of trying to do that, which is sort of the way we normally study the scriptures, we pick like a passage or a few verses, we understand the context, we dig deep into some of the words and what they mean and that sort of thing. This is much more narrative. And so because there's so many interactions and because it's narrative, I wanna approach it more in that sort of style where we're trying to just get maybe the big ideas that are happening in these stories because John, he's looking back, right? He's looking back, writing some 30, 40 years after he was engaged with Jesus during some of these times or after he heard other people tell these stories. And he's reflecting back and he's writing them down. And as he's writing them down, he's recalling some of the things that happened, but he's doing it in this very like sort of thematic way. If you're reading through the entire Gospel of John, you're gonna pick up these themes woven throughout the entire thing from beginning all the way to the end. And even some of these themes highlighted in the interactions that Jesus has with people. And so what I wanna do is I wanna pick up what I think, and I could be wrong, but I'm gonna do my best to try to pick up the major things that John is trying to point out in terms of the nature and the character of Jesus in each of these stories. And so some of them are gonna be repeated in other interactions, so I'm choosing the ones that are unique to these particular interactions. And so with that in mind, I wanna to point to a few things um, insofar as how Jesus is compelling, um, and then also how it is that Jesus is compelling. I said that, but it, Two, two different ways of emphasis here, right? So this is kind of the outline of the sermon series. How is Jesus compelling? And what I mean by that is how is it that he's drawing us to himself and revealing himself? And then also how is Jesus compelling? So how is Jesus pressing us out? Because now that we see him, we know him, how is he causing us to bring this out into the world. So let's think first of all how it is that Jesus is compelling. What's unique about Jesus? And the first thing that I wanna point out that is in this story and really not anywhere else has to do primarily with the social status of Jesus. Look with me back in the story. After the first portion of the story, it picks up, it says, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, an important piece of information apparently according to John, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael 
And he said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, well, come and see. The fact that John looks back and recalls this interaction where Nathanael goes, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Apparently stood out in John's mind where he's like, I got to put this in here. There's something significant about this interaction that he wants to reveal about the character and the nature of Jesus, namely that he's from Nazareth, apparently a place that nobody thought much of. Uh, Philip from Bethsaida and Nathanael too, is just north of Nazareth. And Bethsaida had been around for quite some time, and it was, it was far more populated than, than Nazareth actually was. Nazareth was uh, a city that was settled probably within 100 years prior to Jesus' incarnation, his birth, and it probably only had around three to 400 people. And so it was this kind of podunk town, sort of like in the, not like in the middle of nowhere, but kind of like, ah, who cares? It's just one of those cities. Like, you don't expect much to happen in that sort of a place, and you don't expect people, like prestigious people, people to come out of a place like that. And, and it makes sense that Nathaniel would think this way, like the Messiah, I mean, God in the flesh is coming out of Nazareth? I mean, just think about this in our day and age. Like, it makes complete sense to question this sort of a thing. And like, in our day and age, we do this very similar thing where, where we think about people of prestige and honor and of glory, really, like people who have accomplished much, people who are producing much, like we tend to think of those people as coming from those kinds of cities that produce those kinds of people, right? So when we think about people who have done amazing things, for instance, in the entertainment industry, you go Hollywood, you go Nashville, if you like lame country music, but nonetheless, you go, you go, <laughs> you go to those, that's where your, your mind, you go to those places and you're like, that's where those kinds of people come from, right? Or if you go to like business or people who are really successful in, in the business world, you go New York City, right? Chicago, something like that, right? And you go to those places because those places tend to produce those kinds of people. Even if they weren't born there, they spent some kind of time there and they were shaped by that place, which actually allows them, by being shaped in that place, to produce more, to bring more to the world than what you would think in other places. So here, here's how this works, right? I mean, it's just simple, like social science. When you put a whole bunch of people in a small area, the, just the sheer density of those people in that place caused the standards to rise, right? Because there's more competition. So when you're around a bunch of people and you're trying to become something great, you have more people that you have to become greater than, right? You got more people that you got to become smarter than. You got more people that you got to become more creative than. So you put all these people in a place and the standard begins to rise and that's how great people come out of those places. So, uh, for instance, Tim Keller, who's a, a pastor in, in uh, New York City, he tells a story that is very insightful to this. It's about this girl who was a violinist and she was just a well-accomplished violinist um, at, at her age of just 17 and she was going to, to school for music in New York City. And so she packs up her violin and she travels to, to New York City and, and she gets off the subway and she hears this just amazing violin music being played in the distance. And as she's walking, she's noticing that she's getting closer and closer to this music. And, and she's thinking like, this is coming through the speakers. This is too good. This is, this is just too amazing. This must be somebody famous or something being played over the, the PA system. And, and as she gets closer and closer, she finds this kind of riggedy old guy sitting in the corner with his case open, just going to town on this violin with some of the most beautiful music she's ever heard. And she looks at him and she thinks to herself, if he's playing in a subway, and I think I'm good, 
And where am I going to be playing? Like, she just realized that when you show up in a place like this, the standard is so much higher. People are so much better at things. And so they produce these amazing artists, these amazing business people, because there's just that sheer density in a place like that. You think the same with education, right? I mean, why do we pack colleges in so close to each other? Like, just think about Boston. Think about Amherst. Like, we pack all of these colleges in right next to each other because the idea is that we want to be a city that produces the best. So we put all these amazing colleges together so that we can get all these people into our schools so that our city can be put on the map. And of course, that brings money, revenue, all that sort of stuff, but that's why they're packing all of this in. They want to produce people who are amazing. Jesus is from Nazareth. Nazareth. What do you expect is going to come out of Nazareth? Surely it couldn't be anything that amazing. Like, they've never produced anything all that amazing. And this is where God decides to spend the majority of his life. It's being raised in this podunk town called Nazareth. Like, that, what is going on there? And then think of this, right? John also records that when, he has this, when, when Nathaniel has this conversation, Philip says specifically, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, You're not supposed to go, whoa, Joseph, the the amazing Joseph. No, you're supposed to go, Joseph? Joseph who? I mean, isn't this where we get the term, like, just Joe Schmo? (laughs) I mean, Joseph? Who really cares? And Joseph, depicted in the other Gospels, we know as a carpenter. Now, just kind of as a side note, in case you're you're curious, Nazareth um, didn't have very much wood at all, and the wood that it did have was really wrangly, and so um, the idea of a a carpenter during that time could be anything from a stonemason all the way through working with woods. It's very likely that Joseph was actually working with stone and building things for who? Well, people in Nazareth. Those people in Nazareth have a ton of money, and want a whole bunch of big, beautiful, amazing things? Probably not. So what is Joseph producing? He's producing average stuff for the average person because Joseph is an average guy. Like, in other words, there's nothing really all that amazing about Jesus of Nazareth. He's just this normal guy in Nathaniel's mind. Could anything good come out of here? Or think about several hundred years prior to this, Isaiah speaks of this Jesus, and here's what he says. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In fact, he was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not." He was like a nobody. Now, here's why this is so compelling to me. When I think of, like, who it is that that I I should look up to and who it is that I should be following and, therefore, what it is that I should be like, I go, man, let's make a dent in this world. Let's do great things for God. Like, that's what I think. And I go, well, who's done that before? And then I look to the big names. I look at the big names of, of people who've come out of those university years, those people who've accomplished those amazing things. And I go, I want to be like that. And it's crazy that Jesus goes, no, I'm just going to be born and raised in this podunk place, and I'm just going to show you who God is and what God is like, just in this very simple manner. Do you, do you recognize the confidence that this must take? Like, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't fall back on his resume. 
He doesn't fall back on his accolades or his achievements. He doesn't peacock up and try to show everybody how amazing he is. No, he's just a normal guy. Like, that is the kind of guy who is so confident in his identity. That's the kind of guy that, like, I want to follow. Like, that's the kind of person I want to follow. Paul the Apostle, he reflects back on this Jesus in Philippians, and he says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's amazing. To me, that's extremely compelling. But also, what's compelling about this Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, is his vocation. Like, what does Jesus decide to do when he enters onto the scene? Look back at the story. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. So John the Baptist sees Jesus, look at the Lamb of God. Amazing statement. The two disciples, these are disciples of John the Baptist. Mind you, this is the person Jesus will call the greatest prophet who's ever walked the planet. These two disciples following the greatest prophet who's ever walked the planet left him (laughs) and they followed Jesus. Like, what, if you're John, it's like, what am I, like, chopped liver over here? I mean, like, I'm the greatest prophet. You guys just, like, bail to go follow this other guy. But that's what they do. Jesus turns. He saw them, and he said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Like, think about this for just a second, okay? Because when we, when we hear the term teacher, and that's kind of the way it's elaborated for us there in English, but rabbi is so much more than the sort of teacher that we might think of today, right? So today, when you hear teacher, you probably immediately go to, like, a classroom setting and a person who's teaching academics, purely trying to, like, help your intellect grow, right? So you'll understand certain things about mathematics or science or history, and they're trying to, like, put this information in your head. And usually the reason for this kind of teaching or this, this scenario is so that that, right, you can either have a different view of something or really that you could pass a test, right? In other words, that you could check the right boxes, that you could fill in the right blanks. And this teacher teaches in accord with that. They're trying to get you to check the right boxes so you know the right things and fill in the the right answers to those blanks. So now you have the knowledge, you can pass the test, you move on, right? But this is not at all the idea of what a rabbi was during this time. And even today, the the Jewish rabbinical practice is far more extensive than this sort of a thing. It's it's actually a lot more having to do with paving the way of life. In, In other words, it's not just about checking the right boxes, having the right answers, filling in the right blanks. It's actually about living the right way. And, and Jesus comes to be this sort of a rabbi, not just taking his disciples. Do you notice Jesus never like, takes his disciples on a regular routine into a classroom setting and gives them a test? No, Jesus says, come follow me. And then when he says, I've got something for you to do that looks like me, he sends them out. Like, there, there's always a doing with Jesus. So certainly, you know, he preaches and he teaches, but it's always coupled with a doing because that's what rabbis did. Rabbis lived a certain way and called people to follow in that way. And so as the rabbi is moving forward, they're sort of creating a path. They're creating a new way. This is why even in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll notice Jesus at the end, he speaks of the the way is great that leads to death, but the way that leads to life is narrow. And that's the way that Rabbi Jesus walked. 
when Jesus walks that way, it's a very narrow way, but it leads to life. And so he's walking, and as he's living as a rabbi, he's calling these people to come and follow him through that way. This is why you see him refer to even his, his whole um, set of teaching as his yoke. In first century Judaism, this was a pretty popular idiom. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see the picture up there of the ox. That's what a yoke is. A yoke was this thing that put the oxen together, and then there's a ring there that you would put a chain or a rope through, and they would either attach it to some kind of machinery that had them go in circles, or um, they would, you know, the, the one who was in charge of them might actually take them with him. And the idea was, I'm taking you to graze on this path. So I take my yoke, which is the direction in which I'm going, and I put it on you so that you will follow me down this thing to accomplish the work that's before. So we're going to plow this thing together, is what he's saying. And this is, this is what Jesus decides to do. Now just think about that for a second. Think about leaders. Think about leadership. Think about power within leadership in our world. Right? In our world, when we think of leaders, it tends to maybe go, oh, well, a general who kind of oversees the army and pushes them forward. Or we think maybe about um, maybe like political leaders, right, who are trying to pass particular laws to get you maybe to behave in certain ways or think certain ways. Or we think about maybe CEOs in business. They're trying to make another dollar, right? They're trying to expand their business, right? When you think about leaders like that, and then you think about a leader who says, no, actually, I'm not going to pursue any sort of geographical or physical gain. I'm, I'm not going to pursue the almighty dollar. And in fact, I'm not even going to push you from the back and try to get you to do those things either. I'm not going to come as a general or as a king or as a CEO, and I'm not going to operate that way. What Jesus does instead, he says, I'm going to go first, and I'm going to lead you through the way of sacrificial love and death. And he doesn't just command it. He does it. Like, this is what is so compelling to me about Jesus, is there have been so many teachers up until this point in, Jesus, in, in, in human history, right? And so many who've come after, and so many of us who maybe even try to teach the ways of Jesus, or whatever it is that we're trying to teach. But how many of us actually do everything that we teach, or have seen another teacher do everything that they taught? Like, very few. Very few because we have this high standard and we want to, I'm sure we all mean well and we want to accomplish it, but who actually does it? And think about the things that Jesus taught too. Like just read through the Sermon on the Mount and think to yourself about what Jesus teaches. Jesus says that if, if you have an enemy, you ought to pray for them. You ought to love them. Who does that? Well, Jesus did it. Jesus actually literally did that. <laughs> like he's on the cross praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Like he is literally fulfilling what it is that he said and taught them to do. He's paving this way of sacrificial love and death. And that, that's the life that Jesus lives. It's, to me, it's just absolutely compelling. He's not from the back pushing me forward and making commands upon me. He's in the front paving the way and inviting me into it. Like that is absolutely beautiful. And again, just so compelling. But also, and finally, and we'll spend probably the majority of our time here, has to do with his methods. What, what is Jesus all about? Like, how is he going to do this sort of a thing? 
And so back to the story. Jesus turned, he saw them following, and he said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Notice the first thing that happens in Jesus. Like, how is he going to be a good rabbi and pave this way as the simple Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph? Like, how is he going to do this? And they come to him, and the first thing that Jesus does is he asks them a question. I love this about Jesus. Have you ever noticed, like, you read through the gospel narratives, people come to Jesus all the time with questions, all the time. Like, Jesus, tell us this thing. Jesus, answer this. Jesus, prove me right, whatever, right? They all want something from Jesus, an answer from Jesus. Jesus is like, uh, let me answer your question with a question. <laughs> Don't you hate people like that? <laughs> but we all know that that's where real growth actually comes from. Real growth actually comes from being, being questioned. Like, I actually, I was titling all of these different scenarios that Jesus has with these people, and this one I titled The Curious. Because the, the and, and I would ask, like, I wonder for us, if you would be willing to do the hard work and ask yourself, like, are you genuinely curious? Because I think that's a good thing. You know, apart from curiosity, we put ourselves in these boxes and slap labels on them, and then we compete with the other people in the other box, and in reality, oftentimes, we're judging them without even realizing what it is that they truly believe or think about the world. And it's because we're actually not curious. We love the echo chamber. We love being right. We love our opinions. That's why there are opinions. If we, if we had other opinions that we loved, then those would be our opinions. But they're not because we love our opinions. So we put ourselves in the box, we strap a label on it, puts other people in boxes, strap labels on that, and then we don't actually even have a conversation to learn what those people in that box with that title that we slapped on there actually believe and what they actually think. This last week I was listening to, to a podcast and they were talking about the survey that was done um, amongst uh, Republicans and Democrats, and uh, they, they actually, they weren't trying to understand what, what their own party believes, they were, they were asking them what they think the other party believes, right? So they went to a handful of Republicans, and they said, hey, this thing that, that Democrats believe, or that you think that they believe, how, what percentage of them do you think believe that? And then, you know, they gave, they gave an answer, and then they did this, the vice versa. To, Republicans, you say, believe this certain thing. If we surveyed a bunch of them, how many of them do you think that, you know, would say that they believe that, right? You want to know how close they were to the reality? Not even close at all. <laughs> these people just assume that these people believe certain things, and these people assume that these people believe certain things. But in actuality, they don't necessarily believe much of what those people in that box believe. And why is that? Why do we assume certain things about people? Because... We love the echo chamber, we love our opinions, and we're not genuinely curious. But Jesus, in order to shake us up, in order to help us to see more clearly, he doesn't just try to get you to answer the question correctly. He doesn't try to get you to just fill in the right box or fill in the right blank, make sure that you have the right answer and pass the test. That's not what Jesus is about. What Jesus is about is you trying to figure out what questions you should even be asking. He's trying to get you to think about who he actually is. And you, you can't do that by simply saying, hey, here's your systematic theology if you want to know exactly what God is like. Look it, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's whatever, and then you can pass the test. Jesus doesn't do that. At the end of his life, he doesn't go, hey, you guys got your theology correct? Cool, you checked all the right boxes, you filled in the right blanks. No, no, no. He says, go, bring my kingdom. Like, follow after my ways. That's what Jesus is, and that's the first thing that he asks this question. He wants them to think. He wants them to recognize that this box, maybe the things 
that I've believed about God aren't actually true. Like, have you ever thought that? Like, maybe, maybe actually you put yourself in a box. You don't even realize it, and you love it. <laughs> but Jesus wants to shatter that. He wants you to think about who God actually is, and so he asks you these kinds of questions. But not only that, notice also, he says, come, and you will see. What does Jesus do? He asks him a question, and then he invites him into the examining and the experience of learning who he actually is. And that's what come and see actually is, right? Come and see is a, hey, come examine for yourself. Come and experience this yourself. That's not just checking the boxes and filling the blanks. This is far more robust than that. And so Jesus here, come and see, come and examine. And what does this require? Well, think first. The, the first thing that it requires is the willingness to change direction, right? These, these guys, they were going somewhere. They were actually even following after John. They made that decision apparently sometime before. So they, they decided to no longer be about the vocation they were in, to follow after this other prophet named John. And then here, they again decide to shift to follow after this Jesus. But that takes the willingness to actually think that you could be going the wrong way or that there could be a better way. Like, that's what it requires. And so when he says, come and see, saying, think about the way that you're going. Think about the way that I'm going. But now come and experience it. Like, he wants us to actually have an experience. And this is so absolutely critical. You know, I've, um, when I became a Christian, I kind of found myself in, in these, this, this tribe within Christianity. Um, some refer, refer to it as, as sort of reformed and, and um and all like great teaching and everything, but uh, I noticed um, maybe about a year ago or so that there there seemed to be a, a heavy, heavy emphasis on learning and knowing the right things, and that's all fantastic. I'm not opposed to that, but there was there seemed to be also maybe an absence of the necessity for and the beauty of experience, and because they you know people want to say. Um, don't base your faith in experience because experiences come and go, right? And so, some of them are great and some of them are, are bad. So don't, don't place your faith. And I totally agree, actually, because our faith is not in our experiences. Our faith is in the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? So Jesus lived, died, rose from the dead. That's ultimately where our faith is. But not to, not to cancel out experience. Experience is a huge part of what Jesus is calling us into, inviting us to have with him. All through the scriptures, you actually see people reflecting back or looking forward to experiences that they might have with God because they know the power of those experiences. Let me just show you some of these. In Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Or notice Jeremiah prophesies of the new covenant that Jesus will make. And here's what God says to them. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This word for know here is a very intimate knowledge. It's when Adam and Eve knew each other and bore a child. Like, that's the kind of closeness here. So what he's saying is, I will forgive their sin. They'll know my, there's no, no longer any iniquity and they're going to experience that. Like it's not just a head knowledge and checking the right boxes. Or look in Romans, Paul says this, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And so the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Or in 1 John, 
what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we've seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was from the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship. That's a communal thing. That's a relational thing. That's an experiential thing. Or Peter, reflecting back on the time that he was taken up with James and John to the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah come down and Jesus is in glory. Look at how he reflects on it. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. The father breaks in to human history and speaks that they actually hear. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Or Paul's helping Timothy to hold fast in his faith and look at what he asks him to do. Don't neglect the gift that you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. There was a moment, Timothy, when something happened. You experienced something. Reflect back on that, he's saying. Or in Revelation, as John gets this revelation of future things. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. The word of their testimony, the thing that happened, like they're reflecting back on that and it's giving them strength to overcome is what's happening. Just read through the Old Testament and think about like how God constantly invites people to experience him. What are the feasts about? Like in, in, in these ancient times, like these feasts were very dramatic and experience-based. I mean, they had to pack up all their stuff and caravan with other people for miles and miles till they got to the city of God, Jerusalem, where then they would set up tents as communities. They would set up tents communally. Then they would feast, they would eat, they would sing, they would learn, like all of these things are experiences. And when you get to the new covenant feast, why with the bread and the cup? I mean, doesn't it seem weird? Like Jesus could just say, repeat this after me every time you gather together. That's not what he does. He says, every time you get together in remembrance of me or how it is that you recall who it is that, and what I've done, what I've accomplished, that I'm coming again, here's how I want you to reflect on that. Hold this thing. Taste this thing. And by, by virtue of that, you're smelling this thing. And when you're getting up in here, you're rubbing arms with people who are also partaking in this thing. Like, all of that is meant to have you reflect and be reminded of the truth of what God has done. And it's all this experience. This is so, I think, absolutely critical. This, a uh, couple weeks ago, um, I, got a, uh, I got a notification of a, of a news article. Um, later on, a friend sent it to me as well. But a news article in which this, uh, this pastor who was... Um, part of a very large church in, in Maryland for, for a number of years. And I used to listen to his sermons and read his books. And a long time ago, he wrote a book about courtship. And some of you have probably read his really famous book. And, and he made some, made some really bold statements about um, how it is that you should go about 
uh, courting and like just rules and stuff and, and therefore if you do these things then you're going to end up with a, with a great marriage, right? And he's reflecting back on it and, and he's saying essentially like I think I, I think I could have been wrong in a lot of this. And so he makes this documentary where he, he reflects and he says I, I think I was wrong in a lot of places and I'm glad that people have come to me and caused me to think about these things differently and change my perspective on some of it. After he comes out with the documentary not too long thereafter, turns out uh, he and his wife are going going to get a divorce. I'm like, that's crazy. This guy wrote this book, sold millions of copies. 20 years later, he's getting a divorce. And then not too long after, he says he's not even a Christian anymore. And, and I'm reading this, and I'm thinking to myself, like, what causes a person who was a pastor? I mean, he preached sermons that were extremely helpful for me in understanding who God is and what God is like. And now, he's like, hey, you could throw all that away. That is, in essence, that was just a waste of my time. I don't believe that anymore. In other words, like, I checked the wrong boxes. I filled in the wrong blanks. I had the wrong answers to this whole thing. What causes a person who once believed that Jesus of Nazareth actually lived who once believed that Jesus of Nazareth actually did miracles, who once believed that Jesus of Nazareth actually was arrested under the political and religious elites of his day, who was tortured, who was sent out of his city, who was crucified. A person believed those things, like checked those boxes, filled in those blanks, believed that this Jesus was raised from the dead three days later and started telling people about it, teaching them about those boxes and those blanks, and now doesn't believe it at all. What happened? How does that happen? As I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about this, this invitation to follow Jesus, and I could be wrong here. Something must have been missing. Something must have been missing. Like he could actually check the right boxes and fill in the right blanks, and yet still could just ditch Jesus in a heartbeat. Something must have been missing. What's missing? I think it's this. Like, think about this for a second, guys. Like, I don't know if you, if you ever doubt or if you ever think about following Jesus for the rest of your life and just get overwhelmed by how difficult you know it's going to be. Like, do you ever pause and just think, like, Jesus is calling me to sacrificially love and die to my own needs and care for the people around me to the point of exhaustion? Like, that's what Jesus wants from you? Like, do you ever, like, think that and go, oh, how? Like, or just, just make it more personal. When you think about, those of you who are married, like, do you, ever, do you ever stop and think about what it really means to be giving yourself with those vows that you made to your spouse, to honor and to cherish and to love, to be generous and kind and patient with your spouse? And you think about or you reflect on how many times you've failed you think about how exhausted that person must be because of the person that you are and the decisions that you've made, and now you're supposed to just keep on doing it? Like, do you ever think about that and go, ah, that sounds so hard? Or when you think about being a parent, some of your kids are crazy. <laughs> and they're just utterly exhausting. And, 
And Jesus, like, he calls us to, to give and to give and to give. And then you give some more and they say they hate you. And you're like, what? Like, how am I going to keep doing this? Or when you think about just the people in your life, like the friends, the, the other believers that you have in your life, like, that you're supposed to, like, you're supposed to love them and care for them. And even if they say something bad behind your back, you're supposed to forgive them seven times, 70. And you're supposed to fight for that kind of relationship and love. Like, that's what you're called to. You ever think about that and just get so exhausted? Like, I'll tell you what, you guys. I've wanted to quit many a times. And I'm not just talking about being a pastor. I've wanted to quit being a Christian. And I'm certain most of you have too. Because it's hard. But I got all the boxes checked. I can fill in all the blanks. That's not enough. It's just not enough. What keeps us going? For me, March 6, 2005, I'm in this church. I never thought I would have thought I'd be in a church. And this guy starts talking about this Jesus and his, his, his love and his, his sacrifice. And, and I checked all the boxes. Like I was like, yeah, I believe all those things. But man, something else happened that day. Like it wasn't just that I got these different answers to who God is and what God is like. Like heaven came down that day into my heart. Like something happened. And something keeps on happening. Like how many times have you been in your car and like that song is just playing and you're singing and you're just overwhelmed with something you can't even explain. Like you can't, you just can't explain it. And you try to tell someone, it just sounds ridiculous. Even your Christian friends, you try to tell them and it's like, yeah, it, just, it doesn't come, it, they don't get it because you're the one who just felt that. And it was real, like you felt it. Or those times when like you were just journaling and you're just pouring your heart out about like the kind of person that you are, your hopes, your dreams, and you're just overwhelmed and like something happens. Oh man, in here so many times I've been present with so many of you just singing and just overwhelmed with the fact that God is here. And like you can't just tell somebody that and then agree with you and check the box. Something has to happen. And this is what Jesus is inviting us into. Because listen, when, when you don't want to anymore, and if that hasn't happened to you, like if you've only been a Christian for like six months or a year or two years, and everything hasn't hit the fan yet, it's going to. <laughs> Just being totally honest with you, there's gonna be days where you don't wanna follow Jesus. What do you go back to? Remember those moments that he showed up. Invite him into those moments, even now. And that's what we get to do. Like every Sunday when we get together, we get to invite Jesus in a very tangible way to remind us of his goodness, of his grace, of his love, not just so you can check the boxes and fill in the blanks, but so that you might know him. And that's what we get to do through communion. That's what we do through song. And so as we, as we pause and reflect on him actually coming and this truth of him saying, come follow me, and just like how beautiful and compelling he is. Like as you take communion this morning, like invite him in. If you've never had an experience like that, I would, I would, I would invite you to invite that. Like please.
plead with him that he might show up in a way that you can look back at for years and years to come that when life is difficult, you're like, no, even though I don't want to believe right now, I can't deny that he showed up that Sunday morning when I took that bread and I dipped it in that cup and he was here, like he was there. When those doubts come, like invite him for moments like that, that you might continue to hold fast because he is good. He is good. Father, thank you. Thank you for not just hanging out in heaven and giving us a bunch of theology, but for stepping in, for inviting us to see, to taste, and to know. And Father, we plead with you, God, we plead with you. Father, that by your spirit, you would give every single person in this room an experience with you that they can hang their hat on, that they can know, they can stand upon, of course, with your truth, but that you just be so real to us today. And we can know that we know that we know that when we're just tired, when we just want to quit, we can't. Where else shall we go? Father, make yourself more real, please, by your spirit, in Christ's name.